you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in and being a part of it. If you want to see the video version of this, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss, and you can see all the wonderful authors and brilliance that we've had on the show. Just an amazing array of great authors like we have today. Uh, you can also follow me at goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss and also facebook.com forward slash the Chris Voss show. And there's a bunch of uh, groups that are there on Facebook you can follow as well. Uh, also, I think there's one other place for free your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go to thecbpn.com or Chris Voss podcastnetwork.com and you can subscribe to all nine podcasts that are over there today we have a most amazing author he's written an incredible book he's written many books actually to his credit uh this new book that he just has out is called the short life and curious death of free speech in america his name is ellis coase and he is the author of a dozen books on issues of national and international concern including the best-selling the rage of a privileged class. Coase is a widely respected journalist who he serves as a columnist and contributing editor of Newsweek, editorial page chief for the New York Daily News, a fellow at the National Research Council, National Academy of Science, a fellow at the Joint Center for Political and Economic uh, Studies, a fellow at the Gannett Center for Media Studies at Columbia University, a fellow at the Center for Free Speech and Public Engagement of the University of California, and a contributor and columnist for numerous major publications, including USA Today and Time. Uh, Coast has appeared on the Today Show, Nightline, Dateline, ABC Evening News, Good Morning America, PBS Time to Choose, Election Special, Charlie Rose, CNN's Talk Back Live, and a variety of other nationally televised and local programs. He lives in New York City. Welcome to the show, Ellis. How are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm delighted to be here with you, and thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you on the show. You have an extraordinary number of books that you've taken and written. How many total, by the way? Uh, it's 12. Uh, that's not counting some of my academic uh, treatises, but it's 12 uh, commercially published books. It's wonderful to have a brilliant author on here. <laughs> I'm still trying to write my first book, so congratulations, sir, on, on putting this book out in your 12th. Uh, so give us your plugs where people can find you on the interwebs and uh, uh, order of the book. Well, my uh, website is just my name. It's Ellis, E-L-L-I-S, Coase, C-O-S-E, EllisCoase.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Ellis Coase, um, and that's probably all you need to know. There you go. Uh, so, Ellis, what motivated you to want to write this book? Uh, this is actually the second book that I've published this year. Uh, the first book was a, a book called Democracy, If We Can Keep It, which is a history of the American Civil Liberties Union. And in working on that book, which is a history of the ACLU, which is which uh, celebrated its 100th um, anniversary this year, I inevitably got into a lot of issues of free speech because that's what they're known for. And originally, actually, I thought I would deal with the whole subject of free speech within that book. And I would just have a final chapter that sort of gives the history of free speech and how we got to where we are now. 
And I decided that that was really too ambitious, um, that free speech deserves its, its own book. And so I finished that narrative history, which is, like I said, a hundred year history of, uh, of the ACLU and which becomes a hundred year history of America, basically. Uh, and decided to focus um, expect, you know, just expressly on free speech. And I also happened to be, as you mentioned in the uh, lead-in, I was a fellow at the University of uh, California Center for Free Speech and Public Engagement. And one of my duties there uh, was to give a lecture at the law school. And the lecture at the law school basically became the basis for for this book. And it was it was a it was a, a sort of deep look into you know why we have free speech, how it came about, and how it's evolved in America. So you've detailed that in the book, and that's kind of more mostly the scope of the book. Would you say then? Yeah, that's the scope of the book, and with a particular emphasis on some of the modern issues, because part of my uh, thesis is that the First Amendment, as crafted by the founders, and it was part of and it was part of the it was it was the First Amendment, so it was ratified in 1791, um, has taken some interesting turns. And what we have now as free speech is not really what the founders thought they had created. And it's the NC boss very much, particularly since World War One. So let's talk about that involvement. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about free speech, too, which is kind of extraordinary to me, uh, given we should or Americans were supposed to know what free speech is. But maybe it's because of the complicated history that you outlay in your book is part of that. How has it evolved over over time? Well, just referencing back one of the questions that you just raised, actually, about how our misunderstanding of it, it is very interesting. There's a, there's a Harris poll which came out about roughly a year ago, uh, and it was asking about American support of free speech uh, and free press. And in, in response to that poll, 89% of Americans said they believed in a free uh, in a free press. 91% of Americans said they believe in free speech. Another question on that poll asked, uh, should President Trump be empowered to shut down news institutions with which he disagreed? Uh, and roughly a third said, yes, he should be. Uh, so clearly those two ideas are in conflict. You can't both suspect, you know, support a free uh, press and also support the president being able to shut things down uh, if he doesn't like what they're writing or what they're publishing. So part of my motivation was this sense that Americans, even though we revere free speech, even though if you ask us, over 90% of us say we support it, uh, in actuality, many of us don't understand what it is historically and don't understand what it is legally. Uh, the other thing that I thought is, that I think is worth, you know, just noting, you know, is that the free, you know, originally the constitution, which uh, the, the convention met in 1787, when they were considering these issues, they considered having a bill of rights and then decided they didn't need one. Um, they decided they didn't need one because a Bill of Rights is to guard your rights against protection by an autocrat or by someone who may oppress you. And their reasoning was, well, wait a minute. This is our country. We're putting together this constitution. We don't need a Bill of Rights to protect us again against ourselves. So the Bill of Rights came later. Uh, and as I said, it's, it's, it's part of the first set of amendments, uh, largely because James Madison, you know, pushed the idea. And so there was never a huge intellectual or political commitment at that time to the Bill of Rights, even though the words were there. And right away uh, in 17, uh, 1788, 1798 rather, um, the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed, which basically tossed out free speech. I mean, at that point, um, you could be um, 
prosecuted and jailed for speaking out against the Federalist government. Uh, you could be punished for having strong public opinions against officials. And that was all sort of thrown out once Thomas Jefferson came in in 1800. But the idea that we actually did have the right to say what we wanted to, even in political speech, um, didn't take hold until a century after that. You know, and one of the examples I like to use, you know, is that throughout much of the uh, 19th century, it was illegal to advocate against slavery uh, in the South um, for two reasons. One, of course, obviously slaveholding states didn't want that. Uh, but two, because the First Amendment as written didn't even apply to the states. I mean, the, the, the language of the amendment says Congress shall make no law. And Congress, by implication, being the federal government. You know, so if states pass laws which said you can't talk about this, you can't speak about that, they were perfectly within their rights. Uh, that did not change until the 1920s. Wow. I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah. That's just extraordinary. I mean, just the, the more I learn about the South and racism and, and a lot of the great authors we have on the show, oh, my God. Wow. Well, well, there was a very interesting case. Uh, that, that case was a, a case called Gitlow v. New York. Um, and Gitlow was a, a, a communist, self-proclaimed communist. And he had published uh, a sort of communist manifesto uh, in his newspaper and, uh, you know, was brought up on state charges uh, against the New York um, Insurrection Act, as in, in effect. And the courts um, upheld his conviction. And it was upheld all the way to the Supreme Court, actually. But at the same time, even as they upheld that conviction, and they came down with the decision, as I mentioned, in 1925, they said, well, wait a minute. This is a state law. Uh, does he even have free speech rights under state law? And they said, you know, we, I think... We think he probably should. And they decided at that point um, that um, because of the Equal Protection Clause you know, of the 14th Amendment, that states should be covered by the First Amendment. Before that, they weren't. And so it was only then that they uh, um, made the First Amendment binding on the states. And we've had that ever since. But all that to say, and, and that, of course, was after World War One, And there were a whole series of reasons why this became a big issue in the aftermath and during World War One. Um, but until then, uh, it was just a given that you couldn't speak out against, say, the war uh, during World War One. You couldn't speak out against the draft. Um, there was a, a, a huge prosecution of a prominent left-leaning union at the time, the IWW, called the Wobblies, the only industrial workers of the world. Yeah. Please, I'm sorry. I guess. <laughs> um, but they were tried in one courtroom. They, they indicted 166 members of the union, uh, had the largest physically largest trial up to that time. And I think even up till now, I mean, they didn't get all 166 because some had disappeared and some they couldn't find. But by the, so by the time the case came to court, there were still over a hundred people crowded into one courtroom um, and they were charged under the espionage and the uh, sedition acts, uh, basically for speaking against the war, speaking against World War One, And they were all convicted. And they were given pretty heavy sentences. So out of that turmoil, you know, came this question of, wait a minute, we have a First Amendment. It ought to mean something. It ought to mean, at the very least, you can criticize your government. You can't, you know, organize violence against the government, but you can certainly criticize the government. Uh, and because if it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean anything, you know, and 
through a, a whole series of cases, which I'll be glad to take you through if you want to, but through a whole series of cases, um, it was decided that the First Amendment really should be something meaningful. Um, and little by little, decision by decision, we came up with the um, approach you know, to the First Amendment that we have now and that most people, most you know, people thought, think that we've had forever, but we really haven't. This is one of the great things I love about books like yours and the education that they deliver. Uh, we've had a lot of people on the show and, and, and talking about history and how as America, uh, we have this, we have this whole like, you know, zigzag, I think as Obama would put it, uh, we have this whole weird of just trying to find out who we really are and what the rules are. Like, for example, the same sort of principle would apply to all men are created equal. When right. they put that in the Constitution, it was for white landholders, you know, no women, no one of minorities. You know, it, it, it didn't stand up to the true test. So it's interesting the same thing was applying for uh, hundreds of years, I guess, to to first uh, to free speech. No, I mean, the all men created equal thing was was a was a, a subject of a lot of dispute, even at even at the Constitutional Convention itself, because, you know, they they clearly decided they couldn't uh, end slavery, you know, and. But they also had to make concessions to the slaveholding states, and, and one of those concessions uh, has influenced um, influence up until the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment, um, at least, and the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendment. It, it, it influenced um, rep- representation from the South. I mean, they gave the South uh, additional uh, representation because it had slaves, and they counted, as I'm sure you are aware, they they counted enslaved persons as three fifths of a person. For the, for purposes of the census, and then they counted, then they gave the population count that came from that. They took that into the the, the calculations for apportionment. You know, so until the after, after the um, Civil War, uh, the South had more power in terms of its population because they counted enslaved people in terms of their apportionment of congressmen. And that, of course, was also dictated the um, the electoral college, which, which was based on the apportionment of Congress, you know, and the uh, and, and the Senate. So, um, what the the irony is that um, people thought, okay, you're, when we when we end slavery, you know, with you know, the combination of the Emancipation Proclamation and then the various uh, Civil War amendments. And then we'll make things more equal again. But what happened, of course, was you got intense voter suppression. And that even though you know, blacks were legally entitled to vote in the South, throughout most of the South, they really couldn't. Um, but at that point, the, the three-fifths rule went out the window. Uh, and so they were counted as whole persons for purpose of enforcement. But again, the voting power of that was given to the whites who could vote. And so we have this, you know, this strange sort of Thing that has followed us through a lot of American history and that accounted actually for a lot of the, the presidents we had up, up until the Civil War. I'm glad I wasn't born back in that time, but I often really wish the way I dream and think of things from a John Lennon imagined point of view that uh, I really would like to maybe have been born 100 years later than this, but I don't know if it could be worse. So uh, one of the things I think you start out in your book is you, you draw on several examples of different legal things with the ACLU and, and protection of free speech. And I think it starts with Charlottesville, doesn't it? The book begins, uh, yeah, the, it's framed by the, by Charlottesville, um, which was what, three years ago now, I guess. Yeah. Um, and 
that was interesting for a lot of reasons. Part of why it was interesting, you know, to me is that uh, having written the history of the ACLU, I'm well aware of a previous case that almost destroyed the ACLU. You know, and in 1978, um, there were a group of neo-Nazis who decided that they wanted to march in Skokie, which is a suburb of Chicago. And, and at that time, Skokie was heavily populated by uh, survivors of the Holocaust. And so once these um, Nazis decided that they were going to march there, the city responded by passing a bunch of ordinances, which prohibited the kind of march they wanted to have, it prohibited the wearing of certain types of regalia and certain other things that would have barred them from marching. Well, the ACLU going back uh, actually to the, to the 1930s had a record of defending hate groups. And I'll explain that and why they had that, that in a second. But, you know, so the, um, the Nazi group went to the ACLU and they said, well, you defend our right to have this march uh, in Skokie. And the ACLU did. And when I said it almost destroyed the, the organization, it got intense criticism, actually unanticipated because they had done that before, but never in a situation that was so volatile and, and, and a march taking place in a city that largely of Holocaust survivors. You know, and so the, um, a lot of Jewish organizations, uh, a lot of just liberal organizations said, you know, wait a minute, we're not going to support the ACLU if you're supporting these idiots walking around saying, you know, with, you know, being saying these hateful things. Um, and out of that, the ACLU essentially, and, and their, their contributions dropped off, uh, their membership dropped off. And the ACLU basically said, okay, we're in a, we're in a crisis. What, what, how do we deal with this? And they decided in effect to double down. And the, uh, the guy who had led the defense effort of the uh, Nazis was a guy named David Goldberger, a Jewish guy. Uh, who had faced criticism in his own synagogue for doing so and who had been under a lot of heavy pressure. And they basically came up with this idea. They said, well, David, why don't you write a, a letter explaining why, despite the fact that you know, you're Jewish and you have uh, antecedents who were uh, destroyed in the Holocaust, why you decided to, uh, to take this case? And he did. Um, and his uh, defense in brief was essentially this. He said, look, you know, I'm defending civil rights workers all over the country. I'm defending the, the marchers in Selma. I'm defending all of these people. Um, and Selma would love to do what Skokie is doing. They would love to pass these laws that are prohibiting people from speaking out and people from marching. But I can't defend them there and not defend it here. I can't defend government cracking down on free speech um, in Selma, but think it's okay with they, if they crack down on Nazi speech um, in Skokie. And people bought it. Uh, it became, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that letter became the most successful fundraising letter that the ACLU had ever done up to the time. And so it's been sort of bedrock ACLU philosophy since then that, uh, that you know, that, that they support hate speech. So, so, you, so, you, so you flash forward uh, to Charlottesville uh, in 2017 and uh, this guy, David Kessler was his name, decided he was going to have a big rally, which he called Unite the Right Rally. And at that point, yeah, Charlottesville was already tired of these. I mean, the, 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 it had become sort of a, of a lightning rod because a Robert E. Lee Park, named for the Confederate, Confederate general, of course, uh, had been renamed. Um, they were renaming it the Emancipation Park. And they were talking about taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. 
And this really enraged these guys who really like Confederate statues and like Confederate heroes. And so they have been a march already by another sort of neo-Nazi type group. And they have been a, you know, a march even before that by a, another sort of white supremacist group. And so this is going to be the third march uh, in a fairly short period of time in Skokie. And Skokie, not Skokie, rather, in Charlottesville. And Charlottesville said, look, we realize there's a First Amendment. So you guys can have your march, but you have to have it in this park. You can have it like at a park not so centrally located, that's easier to police, uh, that has more space, and that'll make life just easier for everybody. They said, no, we need to have it here. Otherwise, you're violating our free speech rights. Uh, and they went to the local um, ACLU, the legal director of which happened to be a young black woman. Uh, and um, they said, you know, we want to have our speech. Will the ACLU defend us? And, of course, just relying on ACLU president, uh, she said, sure, we will. And so they did. Um, and because of that, they got the right to march, uh, held the demonstration in the park they wanted to. In point of fact, um, that march never took place. Um, I mean, these were people, not only were they uh, Nazis and, and who were shouting uh, pretty weird, disruptive stuff, um, they also, well, many of them were armed. I mean, in Virginia is a right to carry state. So a lot of them came up, came armed, uh, seemingly prepared for violence. Uh, the morning of the supposed rally, there was so much confusion, so much uh, portents of violence um, that basically the city just shut the thing down. They said, this is just too dangerous. We're not, we're not going to go ahead with that. So they called off the march or the demonstration before it actually took place. Um, but there was a young man who had come down who was an admirer of, uh, of Hitler. And he decided he was going to have his say. And his say was to plow his automobile into a crowd. Uh, there was a young woman um, who got killed as a result. Um, and it was a tragedy. And so it, it created a, a whole new crisis for the ACLU. Um, and particularly young people, particularly um, people of color, were saying, why in the world are we defending these idiots? You know, this makes no sense. Uh, and I went through a, a period of soul searching again to dealing with that big question. Uh, is, is hate speech worth defending? Um, and they decided again on the principle that it was, even though they put some in some restrictions as to when they would consider these kinds of cases, uh, and made it perfectly clear they would not defend groups that seem to be in, intending to engage in violence. But it's one of these perennial issues, and and it's, and it's an issue that goes to the, to the heart of the whole free speech debate, which is you know if you do believe in free speech, uh, then where do you draw the line? And there are always lines being drawn, but the question of where you draw the line is never clear. Uh, it, at the Republican convention, you had one speaker after another, for instance, declare the Republican Party, you know, the party of free speech. And it was very interesting because what they were responding to and they were talking and they were and they were speaking against cancel culture, you know, which is obviously piling on somebody because of what they have written or said and, and basically sort of writing them out of the human race, so to speak. Uh, and they were upset because a lot of far right wing speakers had been disinvited on various college campuses or, or they had been met with protests. And they said, see, we support free speech, 
how you guys should not be opposing this stuff. Uh, so what is what should be permitted, what should be allowed, obviously, is very much dependent on how you come to the issue and where you stand. But it, but part of what it says is that even now you know, we aren't in agreement on how we regulate speech and speech always is regulated. I mean, you, you can't you can't scream uh, you know, fire in a crowded theater. You, know, you, you can't show um, child pornography. There are there are kinds of speech which everyone agrees, in effect, uh, should be prohibited. And I think the big question raised by Internet culture and by um, modern times is, okay, where are the lines drawn now? How do we decide what should be permitted, what shouldn't be permitted? And if things shouldn't be permitted, who makes that decision? Is it made by government or is it made by somebody else? And, I, and I, so I think we have a whole series of, of issues that we didn't used to have before and that we, as we sort of rethink where we are in the question of speech. So your book talks about all these different elements. Now, it says the it says the death of free speech in your research and your and your uh, uh, you know the, what you've gone into in the book. Sure. Do you think we're at a dying position of free speech, or are we just at that place where we need to we need to refigure out what this is and and how it works or how it should work for us? Well, I used the phrase intentionally, but I also admittedly it's a little bit hyperbolic. I mean, we we you know we still have the right to free speech. But part of what I argue you know, is that that right doesn't mean a whole lot if you can't exercise it. You know, and that today, uh, particularly uh, since the um, what's called um, Citizens, um, uh, what is it, Citizens United decision you know, of 2010, which essentially allows money to pour into political races, uh, unrestrained amounts of money to pour into political races. We've gone further than we've ever been in this society in terms of having free speech, um, something that is open to the money class, because, you know, I'm not in a position to take out big TV ads advocating something, um, but big corporations are. Um, people who have PACs behind them are. And so, and there's been a lot of research on this. What we what we now know is that politicians, you know, as a group, uh, it makes perfect common sense though. But they, they as a group, uh, are much more likely to listen and to make policy on the basis of who funds them than on the basis of who votes for them. You know, and so so in, in that sense, you know, part of the argument is our our speech has been eroded because we can't use it. We also have an epidemic of voter suppression in this country. And I make the argument, which is a little bit controversial, but I make the argument that voting is a form of speech. You know, and that if you are not allowed to vote, uh, and then your right to speak in this democracy, or at least this democratic republic, uh, you know, is curtailed in a way that just shouldn't be. Um, the, other, the, the, the other way I, that I think that the right of speech has been infringed upon and that goes and it really goes back to the rationale of why free speech is important and and that theory sort of was hammered out um in a series of decisions um through the 1920s and 1940s sort of sort of led by justices lewis brandeis and oliver wendell holmes you know who they who basically argued we only have free speech or we have free speech because we want a healthy democracy and in a healthy democracy, what do, what is the function of speech? Well, the function of speech is to allow the, the, the hearing of all relevant ideas. And in this way, you have good ideas drive out bad ideas and you have truth that drives out lies. And you ultimately 
because of this, you know, you have a more perfect union because you have a union that has more integrity and that is and that has heard the arguments and made and made its decisions. Well, we have something new now, um, partly because of political decisions uh, and that have taken us to the era of Trump, though it didn't begin with Trump. We have endless line. Uh, and the public is hard pressed to decide what's true and what's not true, particularly when government, when the whole apparatus of government itself is serving in the interest of, um, bolstering, you know, these lies. And so again, you know, if, you know, the, the, the underlying philosophy that good speech drives out bad, that true speech drives out untrue speech, well, that's proving to be kind of naive. Um, and then we also have um, internet culture uh, and social media culture in general, uh, where people can have different facts um, than other people have. And the and the consequence of that is that you know people who are speaking um, untruths, who are basically just using propaganda or conspiracy theories or what have you, uh, have as big a voice as anybody. And so. When I say that that um, free speech is dead, what I mean is that the the ideal articulated, you know, by Louis Brandeis, um, by Oliver Wendell Holmes, this ideal that you know the truth will set you free, so to speak, uh, it's just proven to be awfully naive, you know, and 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 we're having the death of that idea, which in some sense to me represents you know the death of the beauty of speech. So these are some really excellent points and, and brilliant discussion research that you brought up with us. Uh, how, how can we improve this situation? There's something the Senate or, or law um, uh, creating bodies can take and do for us? Yeah, I mean, part of the argument that I make is that the whole point of our democracy is to have a representative form of government where, where, where all the voices are heard, or at least the voices of all That's the citizens are heard. That's a good yeah. one. <laughs> That's funny, man. You are, you are funny, dude. No, well, that's the ideal. And, and, and we are far from that. And some, and some of those are for reasons that just a political polarization and, and, and what, and what have you. But part of it's structural. And I, and I say that the, I argue that there are several structural things that make it very difficult for us to function as a democracy. I mean, one, of course, is the electoral college. And we just went through an election, of course. Yeah. And, uh, it looks like, um, Biden will have won by five million, by over five million votes by the time they're, they're all counted. Um, but it seemed for a time very likely that Trump might actually win, even if he lost by five million votes. Uh, that's an obscenity that someone can, you know, and, and well, Hillary Clinton lost by roughly 3 million votes or won by roughly 3 million votes and she lost. Why are we stuck with such a system, which, which fundamentally is a denial of the one man, of the one person, one vote rule and which is fundamental, um, denial of democracy? Well, we're left with it because the founding fathers didn't trust us to directly elect our own presidents. Um, and we're also left with it because of a um, of a system that gave disproportionate influence to smaller states, and that but that also gets into the Senate. I mean, the um, the Senate, of course, you know, fifty states, um, all of whom have two representatives, which might have made perfectly good sense um, back in eighteen ninety, uh, when the largest state, which was Virginia. If you exclude the uh, enslaved population, 
was only seven times larger than the smallest state, which was Delaware. Um, but we now have a situation where the largest state, which is California, is close to 70 times the size of Wyoming. And yet they have the exact same representation in the Senate. Um, you know, so that means that these, that the votes of a person living in California are worth a fraction of the votes of a person living in smaller states. And if you just do the math, we have a situation where one sixth of the population controls the Senate. Uh, that one sixth of the population is disproportionately rural, uh, disproportionately small states, disproportionately, and, and, and it's not, and it's a lot less diverse. Uh, than the other parts, but yet that part of the population controls what judges uh, get approved, what cabinet officials get approved, uh, and legal policy in general. Uh, that's just nuts uh, to a, in a democracy to allow one sixth to dictate to the other five sixths what you are allowed to do legally. And part of what I argue um, in um, my new book uh, is that. We ought, to, we ought to change that. I mean, we ought to change it by amendment. But if we can't change it by amendment, and again, it's a little bit a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we ought to start moving people around. I mean, we ought to have you know, public uh, agencies or, or, or nonprofits which say, okay, there, there was once um, a great migration which had a huge impact on the South. You had millions of African-Americans who moved from the South to the North. Uh, and they fundamentally affected politics and a lot of other things in those cities that they moved to. Why not have another great migration to even out representation in the Senate and make it more representative? If you if you move like you know two million young people into Wyoming, that would be huge. Uh, it becomes a very different state. Why not give them incentives? Why not have you know nonprofits that want young workers, yeah, or that want the minority workers, yeah. In their in their states to provide an incentive for that. I mean, I make the argument it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but partly to make a make a very serious point, you know, which is that you know we have a system that on one level we say we really believe in one man one vote, and on one level we really say that all uh, votes should count and all and all voices should count in the society, but we have a system that structurally makes that impossible. And that creates just the opposite. And, and the, and, and, and the practical result of that is that we will, we, we've just seen it. I mean, we now have a Supreme Court that's totally out of whack with the American society. Uh, and it's, and the reason we have that Supreme Court is because we have a Senate that's totally out of whack with American society, uh, and was willing to approve that court and sanction that court. So the question is, do we really force the next generation? Because a lot of these new justices are very young, I mean, relatively speaking. Do we really, do we really force the next generation to be ruled by a court um, that has views totally unrepresentative of that generation of that America? Uh, it's a big question, and I and I think it's one that goes to the heart of speech and to the heart of our democracy, and one that we sure as hell need to figure out. I love the word fraction that you took and used. It never. I, you know, I've always, I've argued against the uh, college since uh, the electoral college since uh, Gore versus Bush, um, and you know, this is that Trump was the second time I think our election has been basically stolen from the popular vote, and uh, uh, but I love that word fraction because it really it really goes back to what we talked about earlier, where in the Constitution or, or in the following years they only gave minorities uh, a three fifths of the vote, which when you say all men, it's not equal. One versus three fifths is not equality, um, but uh, 
but fraction definitely, you know, I, I feel so much, especially from being California, Nevada, like we're just like, uh, death held by the, you know, different parts of this country that are, have huge amounts of racism and racist issues. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at the map of the U S, especially with the most recent vote, uh, you see the cities and you also see the education and you are actually, if you overlay the education quality of the, the America versus the cities, they almost match in their, in their colors and, and, and stuff. So, and, and most times in big cities, you see that, uh, also, what's interesting, you're talking about how people move in geography. Uh, there's a lot of people that are suggesting that because of uh, Arizona kind of maybe flipping blue from what we're seeing is because so many Californians left California in exodus from there into Arizona. Georgia, I've been seeing the maps on Georgia and their metro areas have just been expanding. And as they expand, they become more. Well, that's, well, that's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I find that fascinating. I mean, they actually, I just have a, a column which was published in USA Today um, yesterday you know, and looks at this whole phenomena of um, the Senate and the Electoral College in terms of where we're moving and where we came from. And what's happening with Arizona, what's happening with Nevada, and what may be happening with Georgia um, may be an indication of where we're headed. And and, and it's, it's not, even though I think the system is bankrupt, um, it may end up working very differently if we keep this system than the people who put it in place intended, which is to say the states, you know, who decided to adopt winner take all electoral systems. And I'll just go through a very brief explanation of what that means. What it, what it means in, in essence is that in terms of how electoral votes are counted in all but two states, it's a winner take all system. So if the majority of Mississippi, the majority of Louisiana vote for a candidate, that candidate, if he's Republican, gets all the votes. That candidate, if they're Democrat, gets all the votes. Well, how that's played out, particularly in the South, uh, is that um, in terms of race, the, the, the voting is very racialized in the South. Blacks tend to vote Democratic. Whites tend to vote Republican and have since since the 70s when there was the deal you know, as a result of the so-called um, Southern uh, deal. You know, um, and... Up until now, what that has meant is, well, let me just even, even get another layer of, of just factual information. Um, most blacks in America live in the South. Uh, close to 60% of, of, of blacks in America live in the South. Um, of the 106 counties, which are majority black um, in this country, 105 are in the South. You know, so, so you have, you know, <clears throat> this huge black population, but yet, at the same time, the black population is not a majority in any states in the South. So you have the black population voting Democratic, the white population um, voting Republican. So in state after state, once the votes come in, uh, the states go Republican. Uh, and the blacks get totally um, not counted because they're not in the majority. What's interesting about how the South is evolving now is that because of the growing population of young progressive people, uh, larger, in, you know, population of uh, Latinos. Um, that's changing, um, and what you are likely to happen, what's already happened in Virginia, what's likely to happen, you know, in Georgia, um, what you're seeing elsewhere, and you know, is that the combination of that minority population with progressive and younger whites ends up flipping these states blue that used to be red. 
So all these states that adopted winner-take-all systems because they thought they were going to lock the old way into place uh, may be in for a surprise over the next few generations. Um, but that's I just that's, that's I think I think I find that sort of fascinating, and we see how that develops, and we'll see how it plays out in the Senate races uh, in Georgia, you know, in January. Um, but bottom line, the system we have now is insane, you know, in terms of 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 how we are electing people because it's just not representative, and 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 it's just it just should not be that if one candidate loses more than five million votes. Uh, that candidate has a shot at becoming president because three states um, voted differently, uh, and it didn't. And, and it and it and it didn't used to happen that way. I mean, I mean, the before this current century, um, it only happened twice. It happened in eighteen eighty six, and it happened um, in eighteen eighty eight, and, and it happened um, in eighteen seventy six. Um, and since then, you know, and in and, and eighteen seventy six, of course, brought us a compromise of eighteen seventy seven, which was which which ended uh reconstruction in the South and ended all hopes of black equality in the South. It was a black so it was it was a backroom deals that brought us that. So it's never been a good thing to have these the you know, these these deals going on. Um but yet in this um century, we're we're barely one fifth into the century. It's already happened twice and and was and could have happened again with this time around so and that has a lot to do with how population is moving around but the, but the bottom line is that this is a crazy system yeah and gerrymandering probably is something that contributes to that as well uh you know how they pick their voters and sure. they stick with areas where they know they can concentrate and then they end up controlling i i'd read something i don't know i can't remember who put it out um it was one of the big uh, newspapers, but you know, they basically said this, we're totally controlled right now, especially in the Senate by just maybe three or four states and three or four you know, electoral things. And this whole thing is rigged. And we're seeing this dying power of the GOP that, uh, you know, I forget the name of the gentleman who was the GOP. He was an African American. Um, I see him on MSNBC time, NBC, and he's part of Lincoln. Oh, oh, Michael Steele. You're Michael about. Steele. And right. you know, he really had a come to Jesus moment, uh, that he tried to get the, um, GOP <laughs> come to Jesus. Yeah, that's really what they, real Jesus. Let's put it that way. Um, and, uh, and, and come to Jesus moment that they need to open up to minorities. They need to quit being this racist party. Instead, they just doubled down and went triple down, quadruple down. I mean, they, they have a problem structurally in terms of what they decided because the, the Republican party, you know, used to be the party of emancipation. It was, it was the party of Lincoln. Um, and up until, uh, even Eisenhower, the Republican Party got a very large share of, of black votes. But um, the Nixon era brought in a change and they decided um, that they were going to get the segregationist vote. And the trade-off for that was that they adopted a lot of policies that alienated African-Americans and other minorities. And they, that was very, that worked very well for them. It worked, and, and, and it continued to work particularly because of, um, the racialized voting patterns I talked about and, and, and the winner take all system in the electoral college. They were when they were to pick up, pick off all of these southern states. So they had every incentive to follow policies that were racially polarizing. So you had generation after generation now where they have paid, played more and more to that base. Uh, and so their base has increasingly been people who are anti-immigrant, anti-black, anti, you know, these, these other things. And it's hard for them to now suddenly adapt 
and say, we're going to represent something else because it's not clear what they represent other than these marginalized values. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> should the ACLU, um, do we really need to look at free speech? Because I know in Germany, I have friends that are uh, German, and you know they they have a lot of rules they put down after World War II to regulate Nazi speech. And they recognize that there are certain speech that uh, uh, gives a penchant to, towards violence. Uh, we've seen that, of course, like with you mentioned with Charlottesville, uh, where there's there's danger or where, you know, it, it just doesn't have uh, like a, a certain amount of value or, or it encourages destruction of another species. Like if I'm doing or another species, another group of people, um, it, it, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to say, you know, screw Jews and 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 do the Holocaust again or I'm doing Holocaust denial, which I think is a wink and a nod towards that without having to say it. Um you know, is do we need to decide that that's bad? That that things that lead to violence or destruction of other people is is something we need to stop doing? Or what do you think in your research? Um, I think it's something that we need to really think about a whole lot. Uh, we, we, of course, do have restrictions on speech. Um, it is illegal to directly incite to violence. You know, for instance, uh, it is illegal, as as I mentioned, uh, to have a child pornography. Yeah, you know, going back all the way to nineteen forty two. Uh, when there was the so-called fighting words case. I mean, that, that was a case coming out of New Hampshire where a Jehovah's Witness um, was attacked by crowds as he was, as he was proselytizing. And the, the local constable didn't defend him. So he got angry at the local constable and, and called him a fascist uh, and a few other names. And then the local constable arrested the guy and said, uh, yeah, you're, you know, that's in a form of assault. So he was convicted. The case goes to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court decided that the cop was right to arrest him. And they came up with a doctrine called fighting words is that there are certain words that are so offensive that if you say them, you can expect somebody to fight, you know, um, and therefore, you know, this conviction stands. Um, that case is, no longer really pay much attention to, but yeah, you know, but it, but it does underscore that there have always been limits on speech, and I and I think that what we, what we need to do as a society is decide where those limits are going to be and who's going to make those decisions. I mean, ideally, um, the the big problem in terms of some of this speech uh, is really on social media, um, where you have this wild west, is this unregulated, largely unregulated. Uh, speech going on, and every now and again they will make some token efforts uh, to regulate it. Uh, but there, but there's nothing in U.S. law or in the Constitution which says that a social media company has to allow all kinds of offensive speech, you know, on its site. Uh, in fact, they can say this is just not adhere to the rules of our uh, of our site. If you want to be in our site, you need to um, be a little bit uh, more respectful of, of other people and other groups. And I, I definitely have no problems with with social media doing that. I have no I have, I have no problem with social media uh, regulating um, ads so that so so that you know they're not just blatant lies about people. I mean, I, I criticized Zuckerberg uh, early in the book because he took the position that it was quite okay for political campaigns to just tell blatant lies about their opponents. And the reason I criticize him, not just because I think that stance is kind of ridiculous, but also because he cited uh, Sullivan v. New York, 
which was a, a classic uh, free speech uh, decision in defense of his effort, because he says that, well, we're, I'm just following what they said in Sullivan v. New York. Well, Sullivan v. New York was a case that goes back to the 1960s and it grew out of the civil rights movement. And it involved police officials you know, in Alabama who uh, were criticized in an ad by associates of Dr. Martin Luther King. And, they, and in their ad, you know, they explained what was going on in the South, you know, that they, that people were being beaten, that King's house had been uh, bombed, uh, that he had been arrested himself numerous times. And they appealed to the country, you know, to help them intervene. Uh, well, public officials in Alabama didn't like that. You know, so they sued these people for libel. And they sued the New York Times, which ran the ad for libel. And that was the basis of these, of the, um, Times to be Sullivan. Uh, Sullivan was a police official who was who was behind the suit. Uh, and in, in, in Alabama state court, uh, the state w- awarded record judgments. They they, they awarded yeah, um, half a million dollars, you know, to the um, to the police official. And then there were several other officials also filing state. So 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 these and these poor ministers who were sued along with the, with the New York Times were facing debts of hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, some of them had to sell their cars, you know, to, to pay part of their of their debt. Uh, and they took so what well, and and of course the reason that the officials sued the, the newspaper is because they didn't want the Yankee press reporting on the on the um, outrageous outrageous things they were doing. And so the and and their their case totally rested on some small errors of fact. I mean, the ad misstated instead of being arrested um, seven times, as the ad stated, King had been arrested six times. You know, there were there were like small things like like that that they fixed on to call it libel. Uh, and at that point, the Supreme Court decided, yeah, you had to have in order for this libel case to win, you, you have to have actual malice, which in legal terms meant you had to know these this stuff was false and it had to be material and you had to print it anyway. And you had to have a reckless disregard for the facts. Well, that is not what that that is. Yeah, you know, that's very different than a political ad, you know, accusing Biden of being in thrall to Russia for this reason and that reason and the and the other reason. We are which are just blatant lies. So I thought it just offensive uh, that Zuckerberg used his decision to not want to uh, monitor that kind of speech simply because he wants to make money, you know, and try to hide behind a, a, a landmark. Um, free speech slash civil rights decisions to do so. Uh, and interestingly enough, I mean, they, they're now modified their rules a little bit uh, so that they uh, are not quite as wild west as they used to be. But I, but I think there's a lot that needs to be done in that arena. And I think we don't quite know how best to regulate it yet. And it's probably not best done by government, but I think we need to sort of figure out how it is best done. You know, I, I, and I, every time, uh, Mark Facebook or Mark Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> makes a, uh, makes a, uh, uh, post, I make it a point to jump on in his comments and call for his resignation like every time. You know, I mean, Peter Thiel and a lot of other conservative, uh, right wing nut jobs, I'm going to call them, in my opinion. Uh, I'll probably get sued by Peter Thiel now or something. I've already sp- bashing him as much as I possibly can. No, he's, um, a, he's a public figure. He can't really sue you. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, you saw what you did with Gawker, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's that. But that was a little bit different. But anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I worry a little. Yeah. But, 
But no, I, I call for his resignation. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think what we really haven't addressed is these, is these, uh, social media networks. And, you know, it's, it's extraordinary to me. And I think this is something you talk in your book about how we need to resolve this as a people. Cause clearly we're not, the Senate isn't getting it. Um, but we need to resolve this as a people. We need to be educated better. We need to understand what's going on. Uh, it's just been amazing to me how many Americans don't understand the difference between private property and public property and how that derides towards free speech in its, right. in its upholding the Constitution. Like, people have no idea that there's actually a difference. Well, I think we, and part of what I say um, in um, um, you know, the, uh, in, in the new book is that we really need to do a much better job at how we teach critical thinking. Um, because it's just too easy for blatant nonsense um, to be spread on the web and for people to view it uncritically. Uh, there was a, a Stanford, um, it was a group of researchers at Stanford uh, who had some students, uh, some uh, college students and also high school students, and they gave them various uh, scenarios and information on the web, and they just saw how they would treat them as, as a factual matter. And they also gave them the resources to investigate some of these things. Uh, most of the kids, you know, young people didn't investigate it. They, they, they took just ridiculous statements as fact because they were on the web, uh, even though they had the wherewithal uh, with making a few extra clicks to um, ascertain that this was totally generated and falsified information. They didn't do that. Um, I think we need to do a much better job at teaching people to be skeptical because it used to be, in the old days, you know, before the internet came along, uh, whether you liked your local newspaper or not, and whether you liked networks or not, at least there was a vetting process there. Uh, and, you know, they are, they did not just let blatant falsehoods, uh, stand in those, in those publications because they stood for, they had a, a particular idea of journalistic integrity. That doesn't exist on the web. Uh, and if it doesn't exist, we need to somehow figure out what should exist. So that people are not just subject uh, to crazy theories, crazy non-facts, and then acting on them as if that's actually reality. I think you're completely right. Um, you know, when when you're when I think what we need to realize and what you're saying is that is that the the power of these social networks, especially with their AI driven, that's that's meant to manipulate, it, take people's emotions or whatever they're they're spewing out and then and then help them find support groups to amplify that and and other things uh just takes it to a no level of extraordinary uneditorial management uh you know one of the things i'm seeing right now a lot of my friends on facebook we're seeing uh people that they claim they're leaving facebook they're not but they're going to parlor if you're familiar with that app right. website and <clears throat> I mean, just conservative after conservative is just going to parlor. And we're already having discussions of reconciliation with our fellow Americans. We're like, okay, we won. Do we reach out to them? And how, how do we start this discussion of trying to become Americans again and settle back into some modicum of decency? Um, and respect for one another and non-bullying and, and, you know, all this toxic stuff that Trump has brought to the table. Um, but instead they're, they're going to parlor. And they're they're doubling down. Like I've seen people saying, "I'm not racist, but I'm going to parlor." And you're just like, "I don't know, man. That doesn't sound like you're moving up the ladder. It sounds like you're going someplace." And we've seen, you know, what's come out of Gab AI, 
four and four chan and eight chan. I mean, people right. have been murdered, killed. Um, this doesn't this doesn't go well. I have a hidden account on Parlor, and I go on there, and I can only handle about five minutes of that place. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Not only the fiction and, and stuff like that, but uh, uh, what what goes into uh, how much hate there is. I mean, there's been I've seen a few screenshots of people, you know, calling for violence against uh, liberals and, and people. Um, PC is that something you talk about in your book? Because that was something you know a lot of these folks are into. They 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 hate PC uh, politically correct because they have the hates in their hearts and they they really don't like having to repress it and they want to exert it and they feel that's their free speech right, if you will. I don't go into it, you know, as such, but I, but I go into it in, in the sense that I talk a lot, uh, uh, write a lot, um, um, in the, um, yeah, uh, the short life, uh, about, um, what the, the, the atmosphere on college campuses, because that, that's what gets criticized so much, you know, and, and the, when the Republicans were talking about how they're the free speech party, what they're really saying is that their message needs to dominate on college campuses as opposed to the message of these liberals. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, PC is just a, a derogative term for describing stuff you don't want to hear, uh, and things you don't want to deal with because, you know, one could say, well, so it's, 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 it's not PC, uh, when you insist that, you know, Democrats are radicals and, 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 uh, and violent, but it, it, but it is PC when you have to say that they are something else. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all a matter of opinion. Um, and the, the Republican party was particularly upset because, you know, say, you know, in the event in the University of California where Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, had a big event, uh, and it ended up becoming violent because there are people from the community and who, who came in and, and created an uproar. It was ultimately canceled. And he immediately is, and even though the University of California had paid a few million dollars for security, you know, he's, he goes out and says, you know, they're not supporting free speech because they didn't allow him to make his speech. Well, they did invite him back and he did have a chance to do his speech. Um, nobody much attended and it was, it was a flop. Uh, and so you didn't hear much about that. Um, so, I think that I think the whole PC objection is a manufactured argument. I mean, it's basically people saying we don't want to have to deal with these people talking about Black Lives Matter. We don't want to we don't we don't want to deal with people saying that diversity is important. Um, but we do want to deal with them saying that. But, but, we're, but we're perfectly happy saying that uh, we ought to worship Confederate heroes. I mean, it's, it's all a matter of what they want to hear and and the. And to defend that as as being an advocate of free speech uh, is a little bit absurd, but that's but that's what you have now. And I think, I mean, I, I I'd be interested in your your research or your opinion on this. But for me, being in the 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 white folk country club, what I hear when I hear the, my fellow white people saying we're you know PC's bad and everything else, what they're afraid of is they want to say the hate that's in their hearts. But they're afraid of cancel culture. They're afraid that if they say the N word, then, you know, they're going to lose their job and their life and, you know, their kids are going to lose their education, you know, and they're going to pay a price for it. And they don't want to have that. They want to be able to say the hate that's in their heart. And that's, that's kind of some of, on top of what you said about PC, the combination of that, I think, I think is really the thing because that's what I hear them saying. And that's why they love Trump is because Trump is the well, enunciator. He, he gives them license of that. But if you think about it just as a logical 
uh, reality. I mean, society always has rules of behavior. Uh, and it's not called PC, for instance, if, if, if someone in a particular social situation uh, is told, you just can't stand up and call women the B word all the time. Uh, that's just being polite. Uh, that's just being considerate. If you, if you, if you have some point of view about women that you want to express, you know, and you can express it, uh, in a non-polemical way, then sure, you're free to express that. And, and, and at the bottom line is that you think that, you know, women are worse than men in some way. Well, no one's going to prevent you from saying that because of some PC. Um, but there are just certain things that they don't like about, you know, I think, well, I think you, you named it. I mean, they, they want to, certain people at least, you know, want to be free to express contempt for other groups, um, and even hatred for other groups, and then define that as a matter of free speech, uh, or as a matter of the PC police shutting them down, because there have always been consequences in society for people who say things that society has great disapproval of. It's just the particular things that are said. Yeah. And, and I think you're right that, that we need to be better educated. My, <laughs> or educated. I sound like I'm from public school. I am actually, uh, <laughs> Trump university and Betsy DeVos public school. Uh, the, uh, we need to be better educated. My mom was a teacher for 20 years and she used to call me up and go, the legislature's doing this. They're taking money. You know, sometimes I would call her up and she'd be like, yeah, I just spent 250 bucks at the store to buy craft supplies. And I'm like, do you get reimbursed for that? She's like, no. And, and, and she would just keep telling me, you know, as they took away civics and sometimes history and ban and all these different things from school curriculums, she goes, we're, we're building a dumber society. And sometimes I watch the movie Idiocracy and I'm just like, that's where we're going. In fact, I, I see a lot of Trump voters, uh, that are giving that, uh, turning that movie into a documentary on TikTok right now. Um, so, uh, it sounds like, you know, somehow we, we have to fix the education problem. We have to fix this problem here that we have before us. I mean, one of the most alarming things of this election was not only how close we were, but, uh, how right I have been for four years that what Donald Trump has been really trying to do is drag us into being a racist nation. I mean, even worse than where we are, because there's no denying we, we have been that for 400 sure. years or whatever. Um, but, 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 trying to drag us into just a full on fascist, uh, sort of racist sort of persecution. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any limit to any, how far that man would go in. in well, I, 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 I guess I would not say, I, I don't think that's exactly what he's trying to do, but I think what he is trying to do is to make his career on the basis of, of white resentment, you know, and, and that's the easiest thing for him to do. We're now in this period where a lot of people are worried and have been ever since the Obama presidency that other groups are taking over uh, and are unsettled by that. And so as, as opposed to what a, um, a healer would do, which is to sort of explain this in rational terms to people and, and help people deal with a nation that's more diverse uh, and that's not so totally dominated by, you know, by one ethnic group. Um, Donald Trump, of course, it's all political opportunity. And, and it began with his, the, with the beginning of his political career, which was based on the so-called birtherism movement of, uh, of painting, you know, Barack Obama as someone who wasn't an American citizen and therefore had an illegitimate presidency. And he's built on that. And that, but that's part of the, but that's part of the dilemma of the Republican Party at this point. I mean, since the um, 1970s, you know, they have sold themselves as the, as the party of white resentment. 
And there comes a point at which that becomes extremely not only just harmful to the country, but counterproductive to them as a party. And I think they are reaching that point now where it, where it's just counterproductive. And I think they don't know how to make a change. And part of or part of why they don't know how to make a change is that they're now headed by an individual whose whole career is based on that. Yeah, I would agree with you. He, he just every fascist leader has done that. I mean, they just find what the hot button is they can and they bang the, the crap out of it. And unfortunately, it, it, it through groups, it becomes this uh, spiral down of where uh, you end up sometimes with a sad destruction of people. Um, but it would alarm me that more people voted for him, uh, which, which to me signals that, yeah, we're we're good with the racism. Let's keep doing that thing. Let's do uh, let's go all in. You know, uh, they definitely support <laughs> And I'm just like, wow, man, I, I thought we would be repulsed as a nation. Instead, we've got more people who are like, yeah, let's do that. Well, I think it's a little bit more complicated, but I, but I, but I, I think that there are a lot of people who are just Republican and they consider themselves Republican and they're going to vote for the Republican candidate because they think that the Democrats are a bunch of socialists who are going to come in and take their guns away and take their children away and take who knows what they think, you know, the Democrats are going to do. So, you know, so, you know, so, so they believe some of the QAnon nonsense or other nonsense and, and they just, you know, just can't move themselves to vote in another direction. But I also think that there is a much larger component of our population than we'd like to often admit that is comfortable uh, with Trump's um, xenophobia, uh, with his racism and with his um, dividing us. Uh, And I think we just have to sort of figure out how we deal with that in our society. My hope is uh, I was looking at some maps and uh, nothing's really finalized now because they're still counting votes. But I was looking at some maps, evidently, that show what if what the country look at in in terms of black and and red or not black and red, uh, uh, red and blue. Um, And and it shows the vote of if under 30 just control this country and voted. And it was mostly blue. And so, you know, the, the, like what you say with the GOP, you, my favorite line from No Country for Old Men is, uh, you can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. Right. And, you know, I've seen a lot of this sort of, uh, white, uh, you know, loss of population as, as minority groups grow in size and population, of course, uh, attain more voting power that we're, will be a minority. Um, and it, it's just, it's just extraordinary to see, What's going on? Instead of just being better people to each other, it's like, well, let's be, let's double down and be even worse. Yeah, and, um, and I think I think that's your rational fear, but it's but it's a fear that goes, you know, to the founding of this country that's been around for a long time. I mean, there's no reason to fear a country becoming less white, um, and there's no there, there's no law that says it can't be a greater country than it's ever been, and and it can't be a country that has better opportunities for all people than it's ever had. But we have politicians, and Trump is one of them, who get uh, political advantage from basically saying we're living a zero-sum society, and if other groups gain something, we're losing something. So therefore, we have to fight these other groups, and we have to be against them, and we have to do these policies um, that try to keep them locked out. Uh, and you end up, as I said, with the situation that I think the Republican Party is in now, where it has to sort of remake itself if it's going to survive uh, into, the, into the next generation. Yeah. And uh, I think they see that they're at the edge of the precipice. I mean, even uh, Lindsey Graham recently said that, you know, they'll never be in another GOP uh, uh, 
president if if he concedes. But yeah, they need to reinvent themselves. Um, the you know the politics of of scarcity, and like you say, instead of you know, it's for me, a rising tide lifts all boats. We're a melting pot, and 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 if we if we raise everybody up, there's so much of the contribution that comes from that. Uh, but if we always think in this terms of scarcity, which people like Trump and the GOP play on, that well, if you want something, you have to take it from the other guy, and blah blah blah. Um, anything more we need to uh, know about your book as we go out? Um, no, I think we've done a pretty good job uh, examining it, and and I I think that for. Um, those who are looking for a, a good, um, introduction to the whole arc of history in terms of our First Amendment and free speech and the issues that are important now and have been important historically. Uh, it's a short book, doesn't take you very long to read, um, but it covers a lot of history and a lot of current events. And I think these books like this are so important. People need to educate themselves. And they need to be self-actualized. Like, I've been in a lot of arguments recently with people like, well, the media is the problem. It's, no, 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 no. The the problem is self-actualization. People need to read books like yours. They need to educate themselves. They need to empower themselves and then share it with other people and uh, all that good stuff. So it's been wonderful to have you on the show, Alice, to share these wonderful uh, topics with us and educate us more so we know better. It's been great talking with you, Chris. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, uh, give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs and check out yeah. your book. Yeah, uh, at Ellis Coast, Ellis Twitter, and um, EllisCoast.com is the website. And that's Ellis, E-L-L-I-S-C-O-S-E, EllisCoast.com. There you go, guys. Check it out. The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. Take an order up at your local bookstores or Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can see the video version of this at youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. It's free for an unlimited time. You can hit the bell notification. I'll give you a very special warm feeling inside. I guarantee it. Uh, just don't call me for a refund. Uh, anyway, uh, go to thecvpn.com. You can subscribe to online podcasts. You can go to goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. See how the books are reading over there and reviewing. And uh, you can also go to facebook.com forward slash the Chris Voss show. Uh, thanks to my guests for being with us. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. And we'll see you guys next time.